listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth Jr. But it's going to be a good one. Take a moment, if you would, to help me out. Share the broadcast. I'm jumping in. Um, this is something I, you know, I, I was considering at some point, and I may still do this. I was considering at some point going through and doing a broadcast on, uh, belief systems that you've got to be solid on as a believer belief systems that you've got to be solid on as a Pentecostal believer. Um, because there are things that you've just got to know and got to believe from the Bible. You've just got to not only know them, but you need to know why you believe what you believe. Uh, for those of you that have been around for a while, um, you know that uh, it's why we launched Miracle Word University. And uh, we're going to put more courses out for that this year. But it's why? Because people are destroyed because of their lack of knowledge. And there's many people. Did you know that we're commanded by the apostle Peter to be ready at any given time to give an answer to those who have questions about the hope that we have. Listen to 1 Peter 3.15. Listen to this. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you yet do it with gentleness and respect. So, you know, we are commanded as believers to not only know what we believe, but actually to have the ability to articulate that to someone else who has questions. And one of the things that's, uh, and there's the link for those of you that are online, miraclewordu.com if you've never checked it out. But for people that don't understand what I'm talking about, it's like, and that's what we're going to get into today. Uh, it's, it's, it's mind blowing that you've got people that maybe they grew up in church. They've been a part of Pentecostal church for a while. And to this day, they still can't explain to you why they believe in divine healing, why they believe in the baptism of the Holy spirit for today. Speaking in tongues is still available today. They don't believe these things. They, you, they could not explain to you why they believe you know, and any of the doctrines of the church, they couldn't tell you why, but we're commanded first Peter three 15, we're commanded as believers to be ready at any given moment to give a defense or an answer about the hope that lies within us. And so I was thinking about this fact that, you know, we really have to have it set in our spirits, why we believe what we believe as Christians so that we can do what the Bible's telling us to do. Uh, but I want, as I was thinking about it, I got into this thought about healing and it still to this day blows my mind that you've got Pentecostal Christians and Pentecostal denominations that will not stand strong on the subject of divine healing. They won't stand strong. It's like they've lost their foundation. I don't get it because if it's a part it's like, you know, if you're a part of a, a Pentecostal denomination, let's just take one, for example, because I mean, it's, it's the church that I'm at. Um, let's take the Assemblies of God, which is a denomination that I grew up in. 
the assemblies of God. And I'm not uh, picking on them specifically. I'm just saying any full gospel denomination, any Pentecostal denomination. I don't care if it's church of God, church of God in Christ. I don't, it doesn't matter. Whoever. This is kind of more apologetics, uh, but there'll be hermeneutics thrown in, sissy. So let's take the, the assemblies of God. If, you know, if you look through their, their tenets of faith, divine healing is one of them. But there are plenty of assemblies of God churches, not this one that I'm in, because I don't go to those kinds of churches. But there are plenty of those types of churches that not only will they not preach divine healing, not only will they not lay hands on the sick, but they won't even stand and declare from their pulpits that across the board, healing is for today. They just won't do it. They literally just won't do it. There's the literally bell, by the way. I'm already into it. It's only 1046. They just won't do it. And it blows my mind. Why even be a part of a denomination that holds those beliefs or standards, doctrines, if you don't believe it and if you refuse to believe it or teach it or preach it or practice it? Why? Why even be a part? You're right. Gina said, I think some of them are embarrassed of it, just like they are with speaking in tongues. They're embarrassed of it. They're embarrassed of it. Don't be embarrassed of the gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit. So I want to just kind of break this down today. I'm going on a rant because, uh, but literally though, I'm going on, I'm, I'm going to go on this rant today because we as believers, as Pentecostal believers, as the victory tribe, we need to understand this. And I'm going to deal with something today also called cessationism, that if you don't know what that is, there are really, and I'll break it down and make it very simple for you. It's not a deep thing. There are two positions, really, two main positions. You've got those that are cessationists and those that, like me and you, that are continuationists. The cessationists believe that after the last apostle died, John, and after the canon of scripture was completed, and after the church was established, that the Holy Spirit ceased in his operation or in the way that he was operating in the early church. He ceased. That's why they're called cessationists. They believe it's ceased. It's done. So they don't believe in speaking in tongues anymore. They don't believe in the gifts of the spirit in that way. The hardcore ones don't. Uh, they don't believe in divine healing or miracles, signs and wonders. They don't believe any of those things. They believe that that has ceased. But then there are those of us that are Pentecostals that are continuationists. You know what that means? It means that we don't believe that the Holy Spirit ceased in his operations after the last apostle died, after the church was established, after the canon of scripture was uh, recognized. We believe that the Holy Spirit continued in his work and is still continuing today in that same work through the nine gifts of the spirit, uh, you know, baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, uh, divine healing signs, wonders, and miracles. We believe that those things have continued. And so I want to deal with it today because this is something that's kind of swept through our culture and that there's people that believe this and, and literally, oh, there's another one. And there are people that have, they, they've adopted this as their own personal uh, stance in Christianity. And this is what they teach. 
This is what they preach. And you've got people that don't even expect God to move anymore because they've come to this belief that he doesn't do that anymore. He doesn't do that anymore. That's not for today. That's not for today. So we're going to break out. We're going to break out with some of their thoughts. I'm going to refute them. I'm ranting on it. And we're going to start in Exodus chapter 15. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to Exodus chapter 15. And I want to uh, deal with this thought first of God's nature, who he is. That's, that's the first place that we need to um, start. That's actually true. Alex, my nephew makes a great point. There are actually a lot of cessationists that are masquerading as continuationists. You know, it's funny because I look at some of these positions, you know, he's, he's referencing this, um, you know, because people want to be safe in their, in their assumptions and they want to be safe in their belief systems. So it's funny to me because what they'll do if, if they won't take a hard stance on either side of this argument, if they don't take a hard stance on cessationism and they don't take a hard stance on continuationism, then they'll somehow fall right in the middle. And, and I'll explain to you before we start what they do they're, they're you know, I'll, I'll give you a few names. I'm not, um, I'm not slamming them by any means. I'm just saying this is where they stand. You've got guys like pastor John Piper. I'm sure you may have heard of him. Uh, Pastor John Piper, and there are others, Uh, Francis Chan, there's others like this, who they're saying, well, and you know, maybe Baptist, you know, maybe that's their, they came out of the the Baptist uh, arena. And so they say, well, you know, I'm not saying that it's not possible. I'm just saying it's definitely not for everybody. You know, that's where they go. If they don't take a hard stance on either side, then here's where they're at. Well, I'm not saying God can't do it. I'm just saying it's definitely not for everybody. It's definitely just, it's for who God kind of picks and chooses that it is for. Not for the, not for the common Christian. It's not for every Christian. And so they'll make that argument with the baptism in the Holy Ghost. I know John Piper does. I know Francis Chan does. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm not saying people can't speak in tongues or that the gifts of the spirit can't manifest if the Holy Spirit wants to do that. I'm just saying it's not for everybody. And, you know, they'll use personal experiences, which is, by the way, this is a big no-no. This is a big no-no. You don't form doctrine based on personal experience, life experience. And I know they're more responsible than that. John Piper is, he would not, he would not form doctrine based on personal experience, but he said it. He said, you know, I've prayed to the Lord many times and asked him for that gift and he's never given it to me. So did Francis Chan said the same thing. I've prayed to the Lord and asked him uh, to give me that gift. And you know, I've never experienced it. He's never given it to me. And so, uh, you know, that then they go, well, I guess that it's not for everybody, you know, and if God chooses not to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, and if, if he chooses not to heal you, then you just have to learn to live with the fact that it wasn't for you. And so really those are the three areas. You've got the hardcore cessationists, then you've got the continuationists, and then you've got people in the middle say, well, maybe he does continue to do those things, but it's, it's a sovereign picking and choosing of who he will and who he won't touch. And so we're going to get into this because as I go to Exodus 15 with you, we got to look at uh, the nature of God and who he is. 
Because God, as I said yesterday, God does not change. Our God does not change. And, uh, you know, he said that of himself. I am the Lord, your God. I do not change. I do not change. His nature is solidified. His personality and his character, they are solidified. He does not change them. He does not, he's not, you know, if he commanded us not to be double-minded, you can believe he's not double-minded. He's not going back and forth, tossed and driven like the waves of the sea. If he rebuked that position in his own written word, he's not that way. He's not telling us to be something that's opposite of what he is. God doesn't change. And so we're here in Exodus 15. And even way back in the Old Testament, he reveals his nature to his children. And, and I, want you to look at, I want you to look at this now because uh, in Exodus 15, I'm going to read you uh, verses 25, 26, and 27. Actually, just 25 and 26. And I'll read you 25b, which is the end of the verse. Listen to this. Uh, at Marah, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them. Verse 26, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord, your healer. Notice how he reveals himself to old Testament Israel. I am the Lord, your healer, his nature for his children, his nature, his character for his children. I am the Lord that heals you. I am, that's where we get the name, Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord that heals you. That's who he is. He's a healing God. First of all, and I want you to put this in the comments because it's very important. God is not a child abuser. I want you to put that in the comments right away. God is not a child abuser. The way you hear some Christians and some preachers talk about God, if he was a natural man, child protective services would come and take us away from him. I mean, that's how some people preach and teach the Lord God Almighty. That somehow, if you're going through some kind of a tri trial test, if you're literally, if you're uh, getting sick, many times it's God teaching you a lesson. It's God that's trying to make you stronger, make you depend more fully upon him. Let me help you with something. God is not a child abuser. Yeah, they'll quote scriptures like my, my nephew Alex, uh, though he slay me, yet I trust him. It's like, yeah, and Job made all these comments and gets rebuked, gets the fire rebuked out of him in the book of Job because he didn't understand. And, and then, he, then Job himself has to uh, confess at the end of the book I was speaking of things that I knew not of. <laughs> I was talking out the side of my head. Didn't even know what I was talking about. Not only did God rebuke Job, Elihu rebuked Job. 
for his foolish utterances. Didn't know what he was talking about. Didn't know what he was talking about. He had to discover who the attacker was. It's not God. The Bible makes it plain in the book of Job. It was Satan that attacked Job. Satan that did it. And Satan is the attacker. Satan is the one who brings sickness and disease and sin nature and poverty and lack. It's rebellion against God that brought these things even into the world. And so God is not a child abuser. You see that? He's not a child abuser. So get this out of your mind that, you know, sometimes God's sending sickness on his children to teach him a lesson. Oh, really? That's what he's doing? So let's, let's break this down for a moment. This is how foolish some people believe God is, that if we go to Isaiah 53, where Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Messiah, <laughs> Isaiah 53, we come here and start to read this that we're supposed to believe. Listen to this. Isaiah 53, three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As from one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds were healed. So the Lord carried literally our griefs, our sorrows, pierced for our uh, transgressions. And, and so through all of this, and I, and I can see, I can show you this because it's echoed again in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter nine, it's echoed. I want you to, I want you to see this. Because this, this will help you. And I hope you're taking notes today as well. I want to give you the exact reference so you can take these down for your notes. Hey, Dave Rogers, I love you. It's great to see you. Uh, Go to Matthew chapter 8. Now listen to this. The Bible says, Matthew chapter 8, I'll read verses 14 through 17. Now this is the same passage I just read to you in the book of Isaiah. And I want you to now see what happens and how the Lord 
inspires Matthew to write in this gospel about what Jesus did and references Isaiah 53 in that same context. Look at this now. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand. The fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all that were sick. Now look at this verse 17. So important when you see this healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. What? He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Do you see that? And he, and he's referencing Isaiah 53, four, that word in the Hebrew griefs and our sorrows, those two Hebrew words, makob and koli. You see what he says in the, in the new Testament, he did all these things. He healed the sick. He cast out demons to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And so the point I wanted you to see and the point I want to make is you're telling me that God sends Jesus to the earth as Messiah, a suffering servant, so that he could take our sicknesses and our diseases upon his body and to crucify them on the cross. Look at that. He took our illnesses, bore our diseases, Matthew 8, 17. So he came to do all that, took our diseases, took our sicknesses onto the cross and in his earthly ministry so that what? God could then put sicknesses and diseases back onto his children. Think about that. How stupid would that be? Yeah. You know, God sent his only son at the time. God in the flesh, the word made flesh came down to the earth, bore our sicknesses, bore our diseases, crucified them, healed them when he was alive in his earthly ministry, did all of that just so that later on God could put sicknesses and diseases back on his children. That's stupid. That is stupid. What a stupid idea for people to put. And people think that and they teach that that's listen, that's not a fringe thing. That is something people teach. Well, if you're sick, if you're diseased, you know, God's probably got something on you to teach you a lesson. He's, he's teaching you. That's people teach and believe that, that it's, it's God, you know, all things he works, uh, for the counsel of his own will, everything that happens, God is, it's God's desire and decree that it happens. How stupid. And literally, you've got people here looking into the New Testament, and I'm going to deal with this in a moment, and saying, well, you know, if you, if you look at it, uh, God's plan to do these things was only to perform signs and wonders in order that his message could get across. Well, I don't d- disagree with that. Of course, signs and wonders helped the message to get across. Of course it did. In fact, I can give you one verse of scripture that says that plainly. Gospel of John chapter two, verse 23, and many believed on Jesus name when they saw the miracles or the signs, which he did. Well, of course, 
Of course, because a miracle settles the issue. Do you realize Jesus healing ministry, the power of it and the apostles and the Christians, whoever, one of the reasons it was so powerful is because every time a miracle of healing happened, it is proof. So for example, when Jesus did miracles of healing, it's proof that he is the son of God. Proof he's the Messiah. Proof he's the Christ, the anointed one. When the apostles worked miracles of healing, it was proof when Jesus was alive, it was proof that he had sent them. No question. And that he was the Messiah because who else could empower people to do healing miracles? After Jesus died, and was resurrected, the miracles that continued on in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament were proof that Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's not dead. He's empowered his disciples. He's empowered his people. And that Holy Spirit that he said he would send had come and they'd received power and they were working the works of God, just like Jesus prophesied that they would in John 14, 12. The works that I do, you shall do also, and greater works than these shall you do because you go to be with my, because I go to be with my father in heaven and I'll pray to the father and he will send you another comforter who will abide with you forever. Right. And so that was in, in the days after Jesus resurrection, it was the proof that the Holy spirit had filled them and that Jesus was alive and that had, he'd fulfilled everything that he said. I mean, you can see the truth of it. You go to Acts chapter eight and Philip just shows up in Samaria after persecution in Jerusalem. And Philip just shows up and signs and wonders and miracles begin to happen. What's the result? Tell me what the result is when Philip preaches in Samaria and signs, wonders and miracles happen and demons are cast out. The city believes the gospel that he preaches and they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the result. That was the result. So what did it do? It brought the gospel and it caused people to gather and believe and hear and be saved. So the same thing it was doing for Jesus, it was doing for the apostles in the early church. Same thing. It was a proof of the gospel. Here's a question for you that I can't understand why anybody would have an issue with. If that's what it does, and it does do that, did it through the whole uh, New Testament, why would God have a need or a desire to remove signs, wonders, and miracles from the earth when we're still engaged in the job of preaching the gospel? We need the same proof. We need to show people the same thing. And yes, it's not like the gospel gained more power after uh, miracle signs and wonders ceased in their mind, you know, Paul, the apostle wrote to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. But the gospel didn't get more powerful. It's always been that powerful. So you say, well, you know, now we don't need them because the gospel's more powerful to, to draw men to Jesus. Listen, Jesus preached, the apostles preached, the early church preached, and they all use signs, wonders, and miracles to preach the gospel and to get people to believe on his name. 
So why would God need to remove those things from the church when he still has a heart for his elect people, the lost that are coming in? Why? Doesn't make any sense. And it's not consistent scripturally. And I'm going to deal with 1 Corinthians in a moment. I'm going to go to the proof text of the cessationist. You know, it was, you know, miracles, signs, and wonders were for when Moses stood before Pharaoh and for when the prophets were trying to get people to believe and for when Jesus was declaring he was the son of God and for when the apostles were establishing the church. That's all they believe it was for. But why would God remove them from the church? And I, and I'm going to show you from scripture how it's a misreading of the Bible that brings people to that conclusion. It's not only a misreading, it's taking a con- something out of its context, the proof text. And then I'm going to show you some of these arguments that are ridiculous, ridiculous. So number one, we understand God doesn't change. We understand he's not a child abuser. Number three, we understand he revealed himself as the God that heals us. And of course he was referring to his children, Israel at the time in the old Testament. But Paul's very clear that we've become a part of that family. We've been grafted in through Jesus Christ by the spirit of adoption. We're a part of the family of God. And then, you know, we're going to argue that, you know, we don't have the same benefits. No, we have a better covenant, according to Hebrews, established upon better promises, not worse promises, better So don't tell me that the people of the Old Testament had a better connection to God and a better covenant and relationship with God than New Testament believers who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus have. That's foolishness. It's absolute foolishness. We've got a better covenant established upon better promises. We've got the blood of Jesus Christ. We are the redeemed. We are the redeemed. And so now let's look at Jesus' ministry. Because here's the next thing we need to discuss when we, when we get into this rant about healing and those that are against healing and don't believe it, uh, it's for today. Jesus Christ um, healed everyone who came to him by faith. You know, if you think, well, you know, sometimes God will release sickness or disease on a Christian so that they can learn a lesson or that they can, you know, he's, he's upbraiding them or he's correcting them or whatever, whatever it might be that they, that they use, you know, he's, God is the cause of that. He's doing that for a purpose. Okay. Well, if that's true, where's the biblical proof of that? Where in the gospels do we ever see that? Show me one story where Jesus was getting ready to heal somebody But then he said, you know what, actually for you, I can't because uh, my father has put this on you for a purpose. So uh, for you, I'm just going to encourage you to trust in him. And I'm going to encourage you to just take solace in knowing that his strength is sufficient for you to just carry this sickness and disease. That never happened. You You know how many occurrences we have that in the New Testament? Zero. Goose egg occurrences of that taking place in the New Testament. If people came to Christ in faith, believing, even if they weren't a part of the house of Israel, think of the Syrophoenician woman, think of the, uh, the Roman, uh, officer who comes for his servant. They weren't a part of the nation of Israel. They weren't promised healing. It wasn't part of their covenant. They were Gentiles. However, their faith made them whole. 
their faith. So for those people that preach, teach, and believe that, why don't we have any evidence of that in the Bible? Why can't we go through the gospels and find even one time where Jesus refused a healing because God was the author of that person's sickness? Why can't we find that? It's because it doesn't exist. It's because it's an erroneous thought process. And really it's heretical because you are actually maligning the nature and the character of God to say that he would put that sickness or that disease on one of his redeemed children. He's not going to do that. Jesus already canceled that out by the shedding of his blood. It's what Isaiah prophesied he would do, and it's what he came and actually did. Anytime Jesus encountered sickness or disease or even demon possession in the New Testament, he treated it as an enemy and destroyed it and destroyed it. Absolutely. He always destroyed it, came against it. So I want you to catch this now. I want you to see this. Jesus Christ is not the author of sickness and disease. Jehovah, our God, is not the author of sickness and disease. In fact, if you want to know about the original intent of the creator, did you ever wonder why God, if that was his intent for creation, why did he not then create Adam and Eve with sicknesses when they were created? Why weren't they created with sicknesses or diseases in their body? If that's God's intention, why did, why didn't they, why weren't they? Cause in his creation, he shows us his original intentions. When I taught our course on prosperity and abundance, did you, re- do you recognize God wouldn't even create man and woman until he had first created an environment of abundance to place them in? Did you know he created the world first? He created the animals first. He created the plants first. And then he created a garden that overflowed with everything they need and then created them and placed them in the environment of abundance that he had made for them. That's his intention at creation. He didn't create sick people. He didn't create diseased beings. He he created uh, individuals that were completely healthy and whole. Why? It's his original intention. And God doesn't change. And God does not become the, uh, the one who takes his children and puts them through destruction. You're redeemed from the curse. You are redeemed from the curse. I want you to put it in the comments. I am redeemed from the curse. If you're just logging on, do me a favor. Let's spread this word. Share the broadcast on social media. I am redeemed from the curse. And so let's move further here. Jesus always treated sickness and disease like an enemy. He destroyed it. He destroyed it. Every time you see it. Now you go on. And uh, one of the things that I I thought, this is one of the most ridiculous arguments for cessationism (laughs) that I've ever seen. And and it's like, uh, and I'm going to break it down for you. And then I'm going to show you something that makes me laugh. Uh, I've heard Bible scholars 
actually say, well, you know, if you go through the book of Acts, if you begin to study through, and then you go on through the New Testament, what you'll begin to see is that, you know, signs and wonders were super prevalent at the beginning, but then they begin to fade off. And then by the time we get towards the end of the New Testament, signs and wonders aren't really happening anymore, you know, and then they'll turn, they'll turn to second Timothy, where I'm going to have you turn second Timothy chapter four, they turn there and that's what they did every time I've seen them do it. And they say, here's an example of how signs and wonders and miracles kind of faded out through the new Testament. And we can see that as the church is more established, miracles and healings aren't really happening like they were. Okay. And this is where they go to Paul's final greetings in his last letter, second Timothy, second Timothy four, uh, I'll read 19 and 20. And Paul writes this from Rome, greet, uh, Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus, uh, uh, there we go, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus, or Miletus. Okay, they went to this verse. <laughs> I left Trophimus sick, who was ill, in Miletus. That's, that's, what in this final greeting, this is what they're going to point to. And they're going to say, see, we're now at the church has been established. Paul's about to be executed. This is his last letter that he ever wrote. Um, and see what he says here. Why didn't Paul heal him instead of leaving Trophimus sick and Miletum? Why or Miletus? Why did not he just heal him? Why, why did he not just heal him and use the gifts of the spirit? If that's the case, you know, he's the apostle of God. Well, first of all, let me give you a couple things about this passage. Number one, it really doesn't, he's, he's saying this really in passing in his final greetings in a letter. He's not teaching didactically about healing. That's the first thing I want you to see. This is not in, in the middle of some teaching on healing that Paul's doing. This, these are his final goodbyes. It's like a PS on the letter. Hey, say goodbye to my friends. Say, greet everybody. Tell them, uh, by the way, Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus who was ill, sick in Miletus. Okay. First of all, it doesn't tell us anything at all about Trophimus except the fact that he was sick. That's all it tells us about him. It doesn't tell us anything about Paul in relation to Trophimus in this passage. It just really tells us what happened. So let me, let me ask you a question for these people that use this as a proof text that see miracles were fading out. Let me make a very specific point here. Nobody can force healing on anybody. Put that in the comments because I'm going to make, I'm going to show you something that'll help you for the rest of your life. When, when these arguments are made, nobody can force healing on anybody. You can't do it. You cannot do it. Nobody can force healing on anybody. And that's not how healing works. And I'm going to show you something because if you've never seen this before, even Jesus, the son of God, the word made flesh, even Jesus could not do this. 
So don't use this proof text and say, well, see, here's a, here's a, here's a proof that uh, cessation, cessationists are, 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 are got, they've got it right because you can see it. Cessationism is already at work. The gifts of the spirit are fading out. Miracles are fading out. Signs, wonders are fading out because Paul, who was the apostle, he left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Oh, really? That's proof that the Holy Spirit's not still working. All right. Let me ask you a question then. Because we don't, and I understand that some of this is me making an argument from silence because we don't know uh, what, even what state Trophimus was in. We don't know where his faith was. We don't know anything about him from that passage. Nothing. But here's a story of Jesus in Mark 6 goes to Nazareth because he wants to do good works there. He wants to heal people. He wants to produce miracles, signs, and wonders, and he's Jesus. And Mark 6, 1 through 6 tells us that Jesus went to Nazareth and he could do there, verse 5, no mighty works. No mighty works. None. And that's Jesus. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So don't, how are you going to turn to second Timothy four, which is not a teaching on healing or signs, wonders, and miracles. It's a final greeting with a passing statement about Trophimus and say, see, Paul left Trophimus sick and Miletus proof that the gifts of the spirit were fading out of the church. Oh, really? So, so what he should have done is just forced healing on Trophimus, just forced it on him. We don't know anything about Trophimus. And so here's the other thing. If signs and wonders and miracles were fading out, then let me ask you another question. If that's truly what was going on. If we turn to the book of James, where we have, by the Holy Spirit, instructions about what we're supposed to do if we're sick. (laughs) This is why I don't get these people. This is scriptural instruction. Scriptural instruction. I'll deal with that. Um, Pierre asks the question, and it's, it's a valid question. He says, what about those who say that when Timothy was ill... He told him to take wine and not believe for healing. That's his, that, this is how I would respond, Pierre, to those types of people. I would say, that's as dumb as telling people uh, today not to use any wisdom with their physical body and just believe God for healing. Don't exercise. Don't eat a healthy diet. Don't do anything. And just believe God for healing. If you read commentaries on why Most likely Paul told Timothy to um, take a little bit of wine with his water and not just drink straight water. You'll find out that in those days there were aqueducts and things that were used and it was very easy for the water to become polluted and some of the sicknesses that people would have, especially what Timothy would have been dealing with with his stomach, would have happened because of the water that they were drinking. And so Paul was telling him to dilute the water with some wine so that his stomach problems, that's just wisdom. He was giving him wisdom. 
It's not saying that, well, don't believe in the power of God. He was just telling him to use wisdom. (laughs) If you've got a water source that's bad, stop drinking full water out of it. I understand our bodies need water, but he was telling him, dilute it. Be like me saying to people today, you know, I know, can you imagine me going to up, up to, um, where was that in Michigan? Um, where they had the water issues, Flint, Michigan. Can you imagine me going to Flint, Michigan? And I had Christian people from the victory tribe that lived in Flint and just going like, yeah, just keep drinking the water there in Flint, but just believe God for healing. Just believe God for miracles. You know, he's a God of miracles. So just keep drinking that water. It's like, okay, you're outside of wisdom at that point. That's just straight stupidity at that point. It's not that we don't believe in a healing Jesus. It's that we also, God's given us a brain to use wisdom with our bodies that are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so what do we do if, if, if we honestly believe that, that, you know, miracles were fading out, signs and wonders were fading out, all these things were fading out. If that's true, why do we have instruction from the book of James about what Christians should do if they are sick? Gives us clear instruction. This is the operating manual if the devil attacks your body with sickness, James 5. And I'll start reading with verse 13, put it in your notes. James 5, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Wait, you shouldn't just endure the suffering? Hold on a second. Hold on. If I'm enduring suffering, I should pray about it? Why should I pray about it? Why shouldn't I just suffer? Moving on. Verse 14. Is any or I'll read the end of 13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll also be forgiven. So if the signs and the wonders and miracles were fading out, then why here in the book of James are Christians commanded that if they're dealing with sickness, immediately call for the elders of the church, let them lay hands on you, let them pray the prayer of faith, let them anoint you with oil and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. So I, you know, I don't understand where people come in. Yeah, it was fading out. If it was fading out, okay, if God had a plan for it to fade out, why did he set up a biblical system on what to do when you're sick? Why didn't God say, you know, if you're, uh, if you're getting sick, there's going to be a time, you know, when the elders aren't going to really be able to minister to you anymore because these things are stopping. So, you know, just learn to get, to trust in me and, and deal with your sickness. You know, people talk, teach on Paul, you know, Paul, he, he had that, uh, that buffeting spirit that made him sick, gave him eye problems. Bible doesn't say that anywhere. The Bible doesn't say it anywhere. In fact, Paul defines what the uh, buffeting spirit was. It was a messenger of Satan. Doesn't say it was sickness. Doesn't say it was disease anywhere, anywhere. And so people, they've got these traditions in their mind that they refer back to, and it's not even in the Bible. It's not even in the Bible. So if we're not supposed to expect healing, 
If we're not supposed to expect God to do these things, then, you know, here's what blows my mind. If you look at James five, there's not, it's not like you're looking at James five and James is saying, now, listen, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And if God has sovereignly ordained for you to be healed, then when they lay their hands upon you, you'll receive your healing. That's not written into the text. That's not even something that's hinted at in the text. It says anyone among you is anyone among you. It's talking to the whole body of believers. Is anyone among you sick? Anyone call for the elders of the church. It's prescriptive. It's prescriptive. Call for the elders of the church. Then if God sovereignly desires to heal you personally, that when they lay their hands upon you, you'll sovereignly receive your special package from heaven. That's not what the, it's not what it's saying. It's talking about those that are sick that are willing to call on the elders. When they pray the prayer of faith, they'll be healed and the Lord will raise them up. So if this, if literally, if this is something fading out of the church as cessationists believe, then God sets up a system that's what? Going to stop working after a while? Just foolishness. Foolishness. So let's now go to the proof text of all these cessationists. 1 Corinthians 13, sandwiched in between Paul's teaching on the gifts of the Spirit in verses in chapter 12 and chapter 14. <laughs> yeah, if it's his divine will for you to be healed. Jeff Van Hoos, that's called dipstickism. <laughs> that's a dipstickism. And they turn to 1 Corinthians 13 and they read these verses and they want to interpret these to mean that Paul was referring to a time in the New Testament church age when signs, wonders, and miracles would cease. And that's their position. Using 1 Corinthians 13, there would be a time where signs and wonders and miracles would cease. Okay, let's read it together. Um, We'll start with verse 8. A bunch of jackanapes. That's right. Thank you for bringing that back. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we, prophe- for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, hold on a second. Let's keep in the context of what Paul's talking about here. For when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then... When? When the perfect comes. But then, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Look now, he's talking about eternity. Paul is dealing with eternity, when the perfect comes. For then I shall be known as I'm known. Notice this, 
Now we see through a glass darkly, but then we'll see face to face. None of these things have come to pass yet. We're not in heaven. We're not in uh, the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. The second coming of Christ has not happened. We're not in perfection yet. We're still in that New Testament church age. We're still uh, in our fleshly bodies, our carnal bodies. We've not been glorified. So how are you going to take this out of its context where Paul is obviously referring to eternity? Are we going to need prophecies in eternity? No. Will we need tongues in eternity? No. Will we need to have special revelation or knowledge in eternity? No. We won't need those things in eternity. They'll pass away. We won't need them. Well, the perfect will have come. But we're not there. So I don't know how you read this passage and think that it refers to after the last apostle dies or after the church is established. The church is already established when he's writing this. He's writing to the Corinthian church. Yeah, and, and, and Alex is saying, I've also heard that people interpret the perfect as canonization of scripture, but that can't be the case either. Because what do you mean by the canonization of scripture? Are you going to wait all the way until the year 300 or whatever? Are you going to wait for the council of Trent? Like, what do you mean by the can- canonization of scripture? Because if you go back, what you'll find from Peter's letters is that Peter and the churches were already recognizing Paul's letters as scripture. As Peter was writing, they were recognizing, recognizing Paul's letters as scripture. So the church was recognizing these things as from God, as they were coming to the churches. So what we have to wait until like the year 300 and something. (laughs) I, I just don't understand because the other thing is one thing we've got to realize is that no one determined what the canon of scripture was. Nobody, no man said, this is God's word. This is not. we can only recognize canon. We don't determine canon. We recognize it. We recognize it by what we know God's word should and would be. If there's errors in it, obviously it's not God's word. We recognize if it's got fulfilled prophecy, it has to be God's word because only God can prophesy the future. You see? And so nobody decided canon. We only recognized it. We only recognized it. The perfect here could not be the canonization of scripture. (laughs) Because here's what I don't even understand. As for prophecies, they will cease. Tongues, they'll cease. Prophecies will pass away. Knowledge, it'll pass away. Has knowledge passed away? I wasn't aware knowledge has passed away. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. As a man, I gave up my childish ways. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. I know in part, but then I'll know fully, even as I've been fully known. It's talking about eternity. That's a very important verse, verse, verse 12. For now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. It's not talking about scripture and it's not talking about when the last apostle died and it's not talking about when the church is established. It's talking about eternity. Paul's dealing with eternity. We won't need these things in eternity. But to use this passage of scripture to teach that somehow the signs and the wonders and the miracles of God have passed away 
Because here's the thing, even church history doesn't prove that. You know, you go back and read the church fathers. You go back and read Polycarp, who was a direct disciple of John the Revelator. Go back and read Polycarp. Go back and read Irenaeus. Go back and read some of these early church fathers. They were still seeing signs, wonders, and miracles. Do you realize they were still seeing healings? They were still seeing demons cast out. The miraculous did not get cut off when John the Revelator died. The miraculous continued on even into the early first century church and second century church. They were seeing it. We have writings about it. You can read these things and there's plenty of writings. Here's the thing. It's not like we found like a couple small little fragments in a cave and we're like, I think they're talking about miracles. No, we've got an abundance of writing from the early fathers, an abundance of writing. In fact, one of the foremost scholars of New Testament textual criticism, who's now dead, Bruce Metzger, Princeton Seminary, said that if we lost every Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, Latin manuscript we have of the Bible, if we lost them all, if they were burned up in a fire, we could recreate 99 point something percent of the New Testament simply from all of the quotations of the early church fathers. That's how much writing they did. And that's how much they quoted scripture. They quoted so much scripture. They did so much writing. We could recreate the whole New Testament from their writings. We've got an abundance of writing. Some more than others, obviously. Some fathers more than others. But we've got a lot we can refer back to. A lot. And we're finding more and more all the time in archaeology. And they're reporting supernatural things. They're reporting them. And the thing is, what do you do with all of the reports that we've got happening today? Because are you going to somehow argue? And here's where I want to kind of finish this, this thought today, this rant. What do we do with the reported miracles the verified, documented by doctors and hospital miracles that we've got going on today. How are you going to explain those that somebody was prayed for in a Pentecostal service or meeting and a healing or a miracle took place in their life? They go back to a doctor and it's verified. I keep one on my phone just for anybody. Oh, I don't believe in that. How about, how about that precious... Uh, at the time she was a young girl, 17 in Massachusetts that I prayed for, love them. And she had not only a brain tumor, but a nerve disease. We have the MRIs from the Boston children's hospital. It's not like it wasn't there. It's not like it wasn't there. We, ha- I, I have the MRI of her brain tumor on my phone. I didn't even know what was wrong with her when her father asked me to pray for her. I'd already changed out of my suit and tie. I was in street clothes getting ready to leave. And they said, could you come back out and pray for somebody? I said, happy to. And I came out and laid my hands on her. The next morning she woke up with no symptoms of the nerve disease, which caused pain through her whole body. It was all gone. They took her back to the Boston Children's Hospital. They found that the nerve disease was no longer in her body and that the tumor in her brain was gone. I have that MRI on my phone. I I have one where I can see the tumor. I can have another one where I can't see the tumor. The mass is gone. So healing came through 
the prayer of faith, as the book of James declares, what are we to do with these things? Are we to then say, well, um, the devil did it as a deception because God's not doing it anymore. So let's get this straight. Then I prayed as a Christian and as a minister, I prayed in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy ghost did what the Bible said and laid my hands on this young lady and God by his power healed her. But actually it was a deception. It wasn't God. It was the devil that did it. That's what we're going to conclude that I followed scripture systematically did what we were commanded to do, did it as a minister, as a child of God, and it worked. And we have documented hospital proof that it worked, but then we're going to attribute that to some other force. What in the world are people doing? And here's the thing that I want you to understand. First of all, that's a very, very dangerous thing to do. It's blasphemous of the Holy Spirit's power. Don't attribute the works of God to the devil. Do not attribute the works of God to the devil. You're on thin ice. You're on a place, you're in a place where you are in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Don't attribute. That's what they were doing to Jesus. He casts out Satan by the power of Satan. Don't attribute the work of God to demons. But here's the thing I want to get into your spirit. If that's the case, how can Jesus uh, use miracles of healing as the proof that he is the Messiah if these are things that the devil could also do? It's an important point I want you to get in your heart. When John's disciples approached Jesus, they said, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? Or should we look for another? And Jesus said, go back and tell John the things that you've seen and heard. The blind see, the deaf hear, right? He goes through his healing miracles as the proof that he's the Messiah. Why? Ask yourself the question, why would Jesus use healing miracles as the proof of his nature, his divine nature, his messiahship, if those were things that the devil could counterfeit and also do himself? It would make the proof irrelevant. It makes the proof irrelevant. The devil's not a healer. The devil's not a deliverer. The devil cannot do what Jesus does. And so the thing that I want you to see is that not only was, was it continuing in through the early church, it's still continuing today. We see it happening. We see it happening as we preach the same gospel they preached in the book of Acts and through the New Testament. God still confirms his word with signs following. Still does it today. And, and we're going to, we can't conclude it's the devil. He can't do it. That should be proof positive when you look at Jesus' claims. He would not have claimed something that the devil could also do. So I want to encourage you today. For all of these that say, well, that's not possible. God can't do it. He's not doing it anymore. The Bible says the exact opposite. In fact, let me tell you something. If you, you might want to pick this book up and read it, it'll really, it'll bless you. It'll help you. 
it's kind of an embarrassment to the, the university that he left, but there was a uh, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is known for its cessationist stance. Uh, it just is. I mean, it, it's, it, you, can't, you can't argue that. I mean, they don't believe in being baptized with the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in speaking in tongues. They don't believe in miracles, signs, wonders. They're cessationists. And this man, uh, you can look him up, Dr. Jack Deere with an E on the end, D-E-E-R-E, Dr. Jack Deere. He was uh, an esteemed professor of theology at Dallas Theological Seminary. And one day he, dis- he realized, you know what? I am actually doing in my life what I have always told my students never to do. And that is I'm reading the Bible with preconceived ideas as I go in and then trying to get the Bible to back up my ideas rather than allowing my ideas to be formed by what the Bible says, right? So he said, what I'm going to do, he tested, he was testing himself. He said, what I'm going to do is that I'm going to read through the new Testament with no preconceived ideas and see how I come out on the other side, if I still retain my cessationist belief system, or if the New Testament changes my mind when read with no preconceived ideas. And he did it, and he came out on the other side, and he had lost his cessationism, uh, lost his cessationist beliefs. And he even, he wrote a book that I wanted to recommend to you. It's called Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. That's, that's the name of his book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, Dr. Jack Deere. He said, no logical thinking person can read through the New Testament and come out the other side a cessationist. That was his quote. Love you now. It's a great book. It, it talks about how he came through and understood. And of course, he had obviously had to leave the, he obviously had to leave the uh, university the seminary, but he, be, he became spirit filled and began to teach on spiritual warfare. I mean, a total 180, total 180. That's a powerful story, but even one who that's the book. Yes. Surprised by the power of the spirit, Dr. Jack Deere. It, it's an amazing thing when you, and this is not, a, you know, I'm not talking about some dummy. I'm not talking about somebody that, you know, got their GED and then got an ordination online and thought, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, qualified now to be preaching. I'm talking about a guy that was like an esteemed professor of theology at one of the most respected seminaries in the United States. And he came to the conclusion, cessationism is not a biblical doctrine. Love you, Pastor Danny. And I encourage you to get it and read it. One of the things that blows my mind, and and you know what? I honestly believe this. And obviously many people feel this way from tradition. You know, they came up in churches that taught cessationism. It's what they've known. It's what they've heard. It's what they've heard preached. They've never investigated it for themselves. Okay. I get that. There's probably a lot of Christians like that, 
Just like there's a lot of Christians that may have grown up in Pentecostal churches that have been taught the Holy Ghost and taught tongues and taught gifts of the Spirit, and they don't even know why they believe it. And that's also wrong. You got to know. That's why I started this broadcast by saying you got to know why you believe it. You got to do the study for yourself. You got to get it into your spirit and be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. First Peter three fifteen. And so uh, I'm sure there's a lot of those types of cessationist Christians. But the other thing is this. I'm sure there are people that maybe had an experience where, and I know this to be true because I know several people like this, even Pentecostals, they prayed for somebody one time, or they had a loved one that died of a sickness that they'd prayed for. And then they changed their view of theology based on an experience. And they said, well, God didn't heal my family. He didn't heal my loved one. He didn't heal my wife. So I guess God just doesn't heal everybody. Oh, so you're going to change your doctrine based upon a personal experience. No, absolutely not. And so Yes, there's probably people like that, that they attempted it and it didn't work for them or they were believing and it didn't come to pass for them. So they changed their theology. And so there's, there's different reasons why it's happening. Maybe they came up that way. Maybe there was an event that caused them to be that way. But one of the things we got to see is it was, it's not consistent with the ministry of Jesus. It's not consistent with the ministry of the apostles. It's not consistent with the early church. It's not even consistent with church history. And the early church fathers from the second century, it's not even consistent there. It's not consistent today because we're still seeing it happen and it would be impossible for the devil or demons to do what God does. They can't assume God's power, God's role. And I'm just telling you, these rants are necessary because it's time for Christians, especially Pentecostal Christians, to wake up and know why you believe. Stop being talked out of what you believe so quickly. Because you're not rooted and grounded in the doctrines of the church. Study your Bible. If you've got to, I mean, literally, if you've got to, buy a, buy a Pentecostal systematic theology textbook. I recommend people do that. You know, there's, maybe you've never been to Bible school and so you've never had teaching on the doctrines of the church. Buy a systematic theology Pentecostal textbook. You know what? To, to help you. I'm going to give you some right now. I'll, I'll, I'll paste these in for you so that you have them. Hang on one second. Here's one. This is probably one of the most uh, famous ones. This man was a genius. This one's called Bible Doctrines. And it's not so much of a breakdown. It might be a little bit more simplistic, but here's one. I'll put it in Bible doctrines by PC Nelson. Boom. There's the first one. And that's just a good reference. It's got all the verses of scripture of why we believe what we believe. Here's another one. There's a kin, there's Kindle versions of these too. This one's called knowing the doctrines of the Bible. You ready? Knowing the doctrines of the Bible. Giving you these resources here at the end. <clears throat> knowing the doctrines of the Bible by Meyer Perlman. Another great one. Now here's a true textbook. Okay. 
This is uh, one that I had in Bible school. And now they've got a, finally got a Kindle version. They didn't have a Kindle version for so long. I'm going to post the Kindle version because I'm now seeing it. They, they didn't have this for so long and finally there's a, a Kindle version. I encourage you to get the Kindle version if you can. Right there, the one I just posted last, that is Foundations of Pentecostal Theology. Get it. Get it. Guy P. Duffield and Nathaniel Van Cleve. Foundations of Pentecostal Theology and the Kindle version includes the study guides. Excellent. I'll give you one more. If you're a part of... uh, If you're a part of um, Miracle Word University, you've heard me reference these books before. This one is is also great. This is called Renewal Theology by Dr. J. Rodman Williams. Great man. So there, there's four books that I've given you at the end of this broadcast to help you. And, And let me just say this, it's important. It's important. You know, it's important to know what you believe and it's important to get it from the right sources. If you're, if you're wondering, I think you should grab, grab those like foundations of Pentecostal theology is a textbook and you should get it. It's broken down in outlines. You've got each doctrine of the church listed, explained, taught, and then Meyer Perlman, knowing the doctrines of the Bible, excellent book. And PC Nelson is a small little book. Uh, Bible doctrines, get them. If you have to get only two, get Bible doctrines and foundations of Pentecostal theology. It's worth the investment into your Christian life to study why we believe what we believe. One of the most dangerous things that happened to Christians over the last 30 years is that seeker sensitive churches ushered in a move where we got away from Sunday school. We got away from doctrines of scripture and we got into these surface level series and I'm not against series. But what good does it do if the people aren't found, like grounded in the word of God and know how to live their life with, with the foundation of God's word as the backbone of their Christian life? It's dangerous. That's why people get talked out of what they believe. They don't know what they believe. They don't know what they believe. And so I want to pray for you at the end because here's the thing. It's time for us to be grounded. I'm not joking around when I say that I made Miracle Word University with you in mind. And we made it cheap for that reason. It's only $69 a course. I made it cheap. And I sit there and and teach you the doctrine, Pentecostal doctrines of the Christian church, Holy Ghost, divine healing, prosperity, prayer, faith. And we got more coming gifts of the spirit. We're going to keep on going with it because I want this generation to have something that's accessible. That's that's affordable. Each class is like five, six hours of teaching to help you be grounded in why we believe what we believe. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. We need to know why we believe what we believe. And I want to pray for you because I want God to give you a hunger for his word, a hunger to study and to know why you believe what you believe. And so father, I pray for every victory tribe member that's watching or listening on the podcast. I pray that today you'd give us a strong hunger, a strong hunger for the word of God, to know the doctrines of scripture, to understand why we believe what we believe. Lord, give us 
a desire to dig into the word and to be built up by the word of God in Jesus mighty name. Use us for your glory before Jesus comes. Use us greatly. Let us touch our region, our friends, our family with the gospel of Christ and Lord, bring them into the kingdom in Jesus mighty name. We thank you. We give you praise and we give you glory. If you believe it, throw some fire in the comments section. Give God praise. I want you to say this with me. Healing is for me. Put it in the comments. Healing is for me. By the way, don't forget, we've got a podcast. If you didn't know that, we have a podcast that's available in all major podcast platforms. It's, it's, it's on Spotify. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's on Google Podcasts. It's on Stitcher. It's, it's everywhere. And if you don't uh, subscribe to it, let me encourage you today to subscribe to the podcast. Get it every week. It'll help you. We put them out five times a week, sometimes more. But get it. It will help you immensely. Just search my name on any podcast platform, Ted Shuttlesworth Jr. You'll find it. I'm encouraging you on this Wednesday to sow a seed by faith. I really appreciate and love every one of you that have been standing with me. Susan, it's been great to see you too. What can you do today by faith that will move the hand of God? That's the question. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to bless you. Um, I'm sure Tiffany's watching this. And I know she doesn't like when I do things like this. But because of what we've been teaching today, I want to add to the drop-down menu. And I'm going to do this for uh, literally anybody that's sewing $50 or more. I'm putting it there today. Anybody that's sewing $50 or more, uh, we want to send you a copy of that Bible Doctrines by P.C. Nelson. That's a phenomenal book. I keep it with me in my library. I've got it on my phone. And of course, this month, for those that are partnering at $85 or more, we're sending you uh, Kenneth Hagin's book, Biblical Keys to Financial Prosperity. But I want, Tiffany, if you're watching, I want you to add that to the drop-down Bible Doctrines. And for everybody today that's giving $50 or more, I'm going to send you Bible Doctrines. If you're sowing $85 or more, I'm going to send you Biblical Keys to Financial Prosperity. And of course, if you're sowing $1,000 or more, here's what I'll do for this month. I'm not just going to send you um, those, uh, that book, uh, Financial Prosperity. I'm going to send you a genuine uh, leather life application study Bible, and I will include Bible doctrines and the Kenneth Hagin book for those that are sowing $1,000 or more. Those of you, by the way, this is a cool update. Uh, those of you that are um, sowing at large levels, $5,000 or more, uh, I'm going to send you the elite study collection that we've just finished putting together. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Leslie, that we've just started putting together. Um, it's, it's amazing. When you're talking, you talk about studying the word of God, we've put it together. I believe the five very best resources for studying the Bible. And we've put them into one package. We've wrapped it. We've put it in a custom box, everything. It's, it's gorgeous. And we've done that to say thank you to those that are standing at large levels to see the gospel go forward. And so for those that are sowing at that level, $5,000 or more, 10,000, 15,000, there's uh, plenty of people that are doing it at that level. There's a, somebody that's really just a, a skeptic and a naysayer. 
Nihilus Taylor. For $1,000, skip purgatory, and $5,000, sit next to the throne, sit on the throne next to Jesus. <laughs> uh, somebody that doesn't read their Bible, because apparently they don't even know purgatory is not real. But anyway, <laughs> you always have the haters. And that's why I do the rants, because there's people that have zero idea what they're talking about. And we don't need to be those people. We need to understand what the word of God teaches. That's why we're going to give you some of these resources. It's important for us to move forward. I want you to check out Miracle Word University if you haven't. MiracleWordU, the letter U, dot com. MiracleWordU, dot com. It'll help you. It'll build your faith and it'll equip you. Amen. And so if you want to sow today, MiracleWord.com, uh, you can sow all the ways to sow are there on the website. If you want to use Cash App, PayPal, Zelle, uh, Venmo, whatever you'd like to use, it's all there. The information's on the website, uh, and you can do that. If you're on Facebook or Twitter, you can use hashtag donate. Uh, if you're on YouTube, obviously, you have to go to the website. But um, thank you. Thank you to every partner. Thank you to every person that stands with me and Carolyn as we're preaching the gospel literally around the world. Uh, souls are coming in. I've told you we're getting ready. Part of what you're sowing to we're getting ready to expand our television ministry to, uh, I, I didn't say Jesus charged for healing you moron. <laughs> We're expanding our television ministry to all of the islands of the Caribbean, 39 million more souls that are going to hear, uh, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ every single week. And so those of you that are sowing and standing with us, as we expand, we're seeing salvations take place every single week. And it's so amazing. Nations I've never even traveled to yet. People are being saved and discipled. You're a part of that. And so I'm very, very excited about what God's doing. Thank you for standing with us. Thank you for believing in what God wants to do in these final moments before Jesus comes back. Today is Wednesday. And as you know, if you, uh, if you uh, didn't know, brand new resources for the kids. For those that are just logging on, teaching on the armor of God today, the brand new videos out. You can get everything uh, on the app. If you search Miracle Word in your app store, it's on. Get it for your tablet, get it for your phone. Go check out all the videos. Download the Bible studies at MiracleWordKids.com and uh, you will love it. You'll absolutely love it. And um, I want to say a big thank you to everybody that's been standing with us. Here we are, Peckville Assembly of God, Scranton, Pennsylvania. It's been wonderful. We're here tonight, Thursday, and Friday, 7 p.m. Join us Eastern Time. If you're not close, you can join us online. We're airing the services on Facebook and YouTube. You can join us at night online. And then, um, on top of that, next week, we're going to be at Church in the City, uh, right outside of Dallas and Rowlett, Texas, all the information for these services and upcoming meetings uh, are on our website, miracleword.com, and you can check out the details, the times, the locations. We'd love to see you in person. Thanks to all the Victory Tribe members that have been coming in from out of town. It's been awesome to see you. It's been really great to see you. Final thing I'll tell you before I go, I'll let you go, is that we've got a brand new magazine getting ready to ship. Um, <laughs> I wrote... I kind of ranted even in my magazine article this, this time uh, on the blind guides and how an entire generation has been lied to by spiritual leaders on the Holy Ghost. 
been lied to. And so um, I want to encourage you, if you haven't signed up to receive our magazine every quarter, you can go to miracleword.com and right there on the homepage, click the picture of the magazine and you can sign up to receive it and uh, you'll get it every quarter when it's released. And if you're overseas, we're going to send you a digital copy um, of the magazine. Love you guys. There's Pastor Dave. I love you. Pastor Dave Rogers. <laughs> Voice text. Audio text is the worst. <laughs> Nilish Taylor foaming at the mouth in his mother's basement somewhere, apparently close to Philadelphia. <laughs> it's time. By the way, this is your daily reminder, Nilish. It's time to change your underwear and put on fresh uh, sweatpants. time to go wash the crumbs off of your mouth and get up from binge watching your favorite uh, Netflix show. I love you all. Thanks for hanging out today. Can't wait for tonight. It's going to be great. Uh, and thank you again to everybody that's been sowing seeds. I, I, I'm blown away. I am truly blown away uh, by your generosity. I'm truly blown away by your uh, partnership, your prayers. I love you so much. Appreciate you so much. You guys are the best. I love being here with you every morning, teaching you, spending time with you, and uh, can't wait for tomorrow. I'll be back again Thursday and Friday and again next week, so it's going to get better and better and better. I love you all. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you tonight, and I'll see you again tomorrow morning. Later. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.